These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind wind door. Once more to try to get back on tangent, I, I started this part of the conversation with alluding to how Alex just sort of breezes past the language barriers involved in our heroes getting to know each other. And there is some media out there, like, say, Amistad, something that I know the Shaws have reviewed, that makes more of a meal out of those barriers. It seems clear that Alex has decided that conflict of that nature takes up time and space that can be better used to address other kinds of drama, other conversations. And it makes me think about how he's talked about he didn't want to get into the political conflict in New Century that much because dramatizing that didn't interest him. Therefore, sidestepping this communication issue is likely a representation of that same intention, that he's focused on dramatizing other conflicts or other empathetic connections. Therefore, we take care of all of this confusing, no, 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 I meant this off screen, and we get to a point where everybody can talk with everybody else. I was bringing the same parallel in conversations like this, and if you'll forgive its crassness, I would ask you all to consider the following. Sometimes you just don't need to hear so much about your fictional character's day that you need a scene depicting them having a poop. (laughs) For those sticking it out to listen to our analytical discussion after that, we thank you. The point I'm grasping at here is that ultimately you are always going to be making concessions and omissions to absolute realism in your fictional media, no matter the genre or tone. The consequence of chasing realism with too much devoted fervor can be seen in Daniel Floyd's segments on Red Dead Redemption 2 in New Frame Plus. To summarize, getting so bogged down in all the practical realities of a situation can actually detract from the point you are striving to shape through your moment-to-moment narration of events. A narrative inherently suggests a construction of events that communicates something through the edited relaying of events. Why, Greg, you are practicing this even as I speak, because you are compiling our conversation into a focused, refined version of events that gets at the goals of this session of ours more cleanly than an undiluted relaying of the full unabridged recording could ever achieve. Honestly, I'm struck by the way I tend to distinguish myself from other podcast makers. I know that Alex puts in a lot of work to the edit of his podcast, and that work takes on a number of different forms. Additive, when he puts in clarifying editorials or music. 
subtractive when he takes out unneeded bits or pauses or interruptions, even taking out parts and moving them to one side for later use in, say, a cutting class episode. I don't base my editing process entirely on his. I have different things that I aim for, things that bug me more to leave in, or moments that I feel need further explanation or added humor. You might have even just heard a clinking sound, which I decided to leave in and not re-record, because I like the idea of Maureen making herself known by cleaning up our breakfast dishes. And there are other podcasters out there as well, sometimes just leaving most of the conversation unedited, or focusing their edit on something else. It's more accurate to say that I have learned from the examples of others, and therefore my edits of conversations with Toby or anyone else are entirely my own. But it's part of what makes Through the Wind Door a work of art in and of itself. Sure, part of it is my being unable to leave things as is and have to tidy it up, because otherwise I feel like I'm putting out an inferior product. But I also think that a finished episode is an expression of the ongoing balance that humans try to strike between order and chaos. Our conversations themselves are a combination of the two, and then I further refine it to make it, I hope, better, adding a little more order, but also a little more spontaneity by putting in unexpected clips like Alex does. I'm not trying to sound pretentious, mind. I am the most critical of my own work, and would never presume to assert that our podcast is some shining example of the art form. But there is a drive in me to help make Through the Wind Door more itself through my editing. And I hope I succeed. Other people seem to think so, and I'm happy with that. And now that I've proven Toby right by needing to insert an editorial and therefore collapse the waveform, let's continue. Oh, that's me called out. Yep, that's I keep doing it. So, as ever we have to ask ourselves what the conscious choice to show these bits of the character's conversation achieves. In this instance, it shows just enough of the exhaustion slash frustration that Miguel is dealing with due to the insistent questions of the inquiring minds around him. But it affords us the reprieve of not putting the audience through that same amount of prolonged effort. Red Dead is not so kind. Likewise, it shows that the other characters are making progress in understanding these two, and they are actually doing so at a relatively accelerated rate, even with the acknowledgement that they're going through extra pains that we aren't necessarily privy to. This suggests that Miguel's role is having a tangible effect. What once took him an entire book to achieve is now being accomplished with a group of characters at a far faster rate, thanks to his insights, which closes the gaps. If you'll recall, at one point, I was actually trying to do some real-world calculations on how fast Steamheart actually moves. Mm -hmm. And how much distance there is between DC and where approximately the southern door would be. Because I was trying to figure out what, say, Steamheart's top speed is, and how long it actually took to get from one place to another, while continuing to take into account that they weren't actually taking a direct path, 
because first of all, they were trying to avoid damage to the craft, and this isn't really meant to be an off-road vehicle, even if there are some parts of its construction that make it easier to travel on not roads, particularly when they don't have a sophisticated infrastructure in that part of American history the way we do. But it also means that it's easy for us to imagine what with them taking a certain amount of time every day to travel, where they can relay all of these various events over a period of time that the story itself just sort of shunts into the background. And yet, like, they're continuing to make progress getting to the places that they need to get without needing to have this conversation being any kind of temporal detour or anything like that. It just is indicative of progress. The fact that you are really speeding along without it feeling unearned, it includes just enough to show the pains of it. The fact that we're able to kind of see so much and hear so much within such a short space of time in the narrative is remarkable. Mm. There's a trope called traveling at the speed of plot, lampshaded once by John Michael Straczynski in Babylon 5. Put a centauri ducat in the jar. The idea that people get to a place as quickly or as slowly as the plot demands. As the TV Tropes page says, this trope usually goes unacknowledged. The story will sometimes explain why they are able to get someplace in an unexpectedly short time, or a longer time than expected. Sometimes the distance matters, and therefore an explanation needs to be made because it has plot relevance. But if this isn't handled properly as a part of the narrative of filmmaking, the narrative in this case being either dialogue or cinematography, then it can break the suspension of disbelief of the audience. I remember at one point where Lindsay Ellis brought this up in regards to Game of Thrones, where at one point the distance between places mattered, and then in later seasons people were just able to quote-unquote fast travel. I complained about this a bunch when discussing the Obi-Wan show, where the speed of ships or people was just a little too convenient. In one place, the cinematography implying two different scenes to happen in seemingly the same approximate time span, even though for one of them to happen, a character would have had to travel all the way to another planet that might have been nowhere nearby, all while another ship was being chased by a Star Destroyer. I bring it up here because this is a good example of the trope, where the author gives us just enough explanation to account for why there can be so much downtime to have a lot of character moments in between the main plot points of the story. On the other hand, with mm-hmm. all of this successful communication, not everything goes so smooth. In a previous chapter, Crow rightly mentions that she fears guns. And at first I thought it just might be the sound, something that she is not used to from her own lived experience. But the story itself points out their resemblance to the dart-shooting tranquilizer weapons of the Lions of Albion. And it makes sense, given the context of how she was felled by them so easy. I also admit that to someone that has no experience with modern weapons, a gun could be considered quite fearsome. We know from Tiger's Eye that various peoples on Krau's continent had access to bows, 
and of course thrown spears. But anything involving a gun, even a dart gun, might seem scarier because you cannot see the thing being launched at you. You cannot deflect it, and might not even be able to protect against it with traditional armors. I bring this up because it's central to our conversation, as well as the story's theme of communication. You can explain something all you like, use facts and logic to make a reasonable argument, and bring someone around to your way of thinking. But if something else gets in the way, emotions, trauma, values, then all the communication in the world can be for naught. Not going to delve too much into the real-world implications of this, because there's plenty of that in uh, current year argument 2020. But Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, Prowl fears guns, and that will not change unless something changes inside her. In addition to the dark guns, there was also that cannon on the slave ship that brought so many of them to painful heel. I'm trying to remember. Was that actually used during the story? Because I'm having a bit of memory overlap in terms of the events as they played out in Roots that Mm. Tiger's Eye was potentially drawing on when depicting the events of Tiger's Eye, how... You know, the the cats were exercised on deck with the cannon pointing at them, Mm -hmm. as well as their eventual rising up and fighting on the deck of the whale. Yes, I believe it was used first in the sort of unsuccessful attempt. I think Ah. there was a moment where they're all brought and like Prowl feels it. It's like, this sucks. And stuff happens that shows that... They stepped out of line and were brought firmly back Mm. into it. Darts appear within the mob and bodies begin to slump. Then the golden tube roars to life and we are thrown down as one, screaming in pain together. My flesh burns and the wind is knocked out of me. All we know now is the agonizing consequences of our insurrection. And then the successful attempt one of the cats steps in front of it to Ah. essentially take the full brunt of the blast i believe that was the one with the eye uh the false eye and i I believe that was how one eye okay yeah i believe that was how one eye died apologies i knew the name was wrong when i said it but i figured i'd just fix it in the edit indeed toby remembered correctly that after experiencing the Golden Tube during Chapter 16, Opalai saw that when it was about to be fired during the breakout that Miguel helped with, he threw himself in front of the tube to protect others. And though we do not see his final moments, we do see the scene afterwards where his life partner Merrick decides what to do with the body. I'm glad that Toby remembered these details, as I should have checked them during my outline creation, but unfortunately forgot to. So, these two, in conjunction with one another, makes guns something that, at their least dangerous, have the capacity to exert oppressive control over others. And, as Frau knows, through the sacrifices that were made at the seizing of control of the ship, they are also capable of seizing much more of a cat's life as well. 
even without that personal experience, I think that Hrao is sharp enough to have the understanding that all people really ought to have. Guns are inherently frightening creations, and we must be wary of their application. So, regarding your response on guns being inherently frightening creations, it feels like people making less than good faith arguments would interrupt at this point to say, all you need to stop a bad cat with a gun is a good cat with a gun. And to be fair at this point... To be fair. To be fair. To be fair. To be fair. Firearm technology in the era of New Century has not gotten to the firearm technology of the modern world, which end up being far more deadly with far greater rapidity and all that sort of thing. I was more thinking of it from the perspective of it doesn't matter if Frank and Annie are on her side and have great proficiency with guns Mm -hmm. and will use those guns to protect them. She still understandably fears them. And given not only her experience with the Lions of Albion, but the way humans were very clearly hunting them during their entire experience of being in Miguel's world, Mm -hmm. her personal fears are entirely understandable. And therefore, no matter that Frank has the best of intentions, she will continue to be wary of just the concept of a firearm in ways that Frank and Annie and others like them just aren't because of their experience growing up with them and using them. And that familiarity, like they aren't necessarily not afraid of guns, but because they have their own and because they have just enough knowledge to understand how to use them, how to respond to them, and all that sort of thing. Their own fears are far more informed, whereas Hrao's fear is far more primal. You have to sort of assume from her perspective she's seeing a group of ape-adjacent creatures that humans are and just is replicating that one Hellboy uh, comic panel of just, is that a monkey? He's got a gun! Bam, bam, bam. <laughs> Yes, I know that there's a larger conversation that could be made about guns and fears associated with them. But that conversation isn't really interesting to me for the purposes of this podcast. I only brought up the subject because it happened in the book, and I wanted to bring it up from the perspective of the relationships in Team Steam, as well as Rao acclimating to Miguel's world. Also, it occurs to me that we need only look back at those ancient paintings that were in the Temple of the Fire Lion, uh, Mm -hmm. and the fact that those representation of humans appeared to also be carrying guns and facing down against the assembled cats of her world. There's plenty of precedent here to fuel all kinds of fears. There's just a lot of, like, very practical and immediate but also baked in Mm. stuff from her memories and also possibly half recollected stories about things that look very similar to this and could do similar things that her culture would and with Haka like 
in charge of telling stories around the campfire mm. probably would be telling stories that emphasize this fright frightening concept racial memories almost yeah yes yeah it makes me a little bit apologetic here as i move on to our next talking point because i'm about to use a very specific uh, turn of phrase that could be associated with guns mm -hmm. abby is apparently not the only person that likes asking armor piercing questions of frank <laughs> However, in the case of Frank's private conversation with Miguel, it plays out a little differently, even if only internally to Frank himself. Either Frank is just getting used to introspection rather than merely doing his duty or living in the moment or trying to move past his pre-RSA trauma. Alternately, the moment could just feel differently to him because he doesn't have secret orders that he's struggling with in regards to Miguel. Yeah. That colors any interaction with James or Abigail in the same way that it's been coloring every interaction, every confrontation between Abigail and Annie. Yeah, I mean, I know Thomas was a bit of a control freak, but I would be astonished if, like, in Frank and Annie's sort of folder of, like, in case of scenario A or B, do this, where it's just like, son of a bitch, he did have a folder for if a purple tiger and a Hispanic <laughs> child came across our path. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you thought I was crazy for putting that in. Who's laughing now? I do love this new tendency for Toby to imitate Steamheart characters. He's just better at it than I am, unfortunately. I would argue that Thomas's preparedness could never account for Hrow. You can't prepare for chaos on that level, any more than the team is prepared for what lies beyond the southern door. But more on that later. Alternatively, Miguel is just better at developing connections with people. It fits, considering his arc in Tiger's Eye, mm -hmm. and how the very next interaction is Harry commenting on how much she likes Miguel. Frank did mainly interact with Thomas in his previous adventure, and he wasn't exactly the source to probe into Frank's deeper vulnerabilities when it wasn't necessary. By comparison, this group of characters... They're more inquiring about that, which is a change of circumstance for Frank. It's a balance between Frank acknowledging that Miguel is too young to have been conscripted in his own book, and yet he recognizes that Miguel is mature enough to still be able to catch on quick with internal truths that people older than him are living with and dealing with. Miguel's ultimate conclusion that the main point of comparison between them is that they're both immigrants is endearing. They have had to make their own lives here and define their own existence. And in addition to Miguel's emotional maturity, that is a point that puts them on a similar level to one another. Mm. It's an unexpected point of rapport mm. that just works really well and is, again one of those moments in this collection of chapters that I just, I loved re-listening to it over and over again in the audio drama. 
And I'm also enjoying that there are enough scenes where, like, the emphasis is not just on the eye-catching individual of the duo, you know, Crow, mm-hmm. the big purple tiger on two legs. There's a bunch of interactions with this or with Harry where it's just Miguel and he is treated as just as compelling and just as worthy of elaboration upon. Well, I think that there's a couple different things in consideration there from a meta storytelling level. First Mm. of all, any voice work that can be done by Alex is inherently Mm. easier because he can take care of that on his own terms and he can do it and redo it and then edit it into the overall audio drama a lot easier than anything that requires somebody else to record it for him to review and then potentially critique and say, you need to do this or you need to do that. But also, considering the timeline, this was at a point where Maureen was having more voice issues. So therefore, I think that her level of interaction in Steamheart was in part dictated by like trying to keep down the amount of personal work that she had to do. Mm-hmm. Um, there were certain key points which was important for her to be able to narrate, particularly in a later section that we're going to get into that is entirely narrated from her first-person experience. But it feels right that in addition to Miguel just being easier to communicate with, Alex would want to keep Maureen's work in reserve so that she only needed to do those moments that were essential for her to do. I will say, listening back to this, that at the time, you know, it was something that I was conscious of because I knew that Maureen was going through that. And so it was sort of like, you treasure all the individual words all the more. I will be honest, re-listening to it, it doesn't stand out to me as much. I don't mean that, like, in Maureen's narration that it, like, stands out in any way. I don't think it does. I mean that the application is actually effective enough and also abundant enough that I don't feel like this is some sort of compromised amount of crowd Mm. as a result of circumstances. I think that it's actually the appropriate amount for Mm. this story and that when we do get to hear from her there's enough going on that you're like yeah no that's totally what I would want to hear from her that is something that I've noticed about my response to it on this second reading and listening through it Mm, mm. no you're absolutely right the fact that you and I have that additional knowledge is what brings that idea to mind overall. Mm -hmm. But I also think that trying to preserve Maureen's vocal cords, so to speak, has been an ongoing component to the inclusion of Hrau or any characters that she has voiced in the past Mm -hmm. to future elements of uh, New Century. We'd love to preserve everything about Maureen. She's great. (laughs) I admit to having some personal stake in all of that. Congratulations to the two of you, by the way. Oh, yes. No, it's uh, less than 30 days now. It's uh, 27 days (gasps) until she officially arrives in Massachusetts for us to ostensibly finally close the deal on finding a place together. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. 
Ugh, now I just feel bad that it's been over a month since I recorded this bit, and it's only getting out to you now, as Maureen has been here in Massachusetts for over a week now. Well, I do promise I'll eventually get back to a proper release schedule. And in the meantime, Maureen has made my day-to-day far better overall. I feel like I could talk a little bit more about the previous topic, but uh, I want to conclude with my additional thoughts on this interaction between Frank and Miguel. Mm -hmm. As a result of Frank being willing to answer Miguel's questions, it also doubles as a continuation of Frank and Annie's arc. Coming to terms with their ongoing roles as soldiers and therefore subject to the orders and goals of others, rather than having the freedom to decide for themselves. I mean, yeah, that what my insightful co-host just said. In Miguel's case, it obviously goes beyond being beholden to the demands and responsibilities of a commanding officer or chain of command that dictated what he must do. Because until recently... Miguel was treated as Francisco's soldier Mm. and one whose well-being really didn't have much stock put into it by him. But Miguel has got to survive and escape being Francisco's soldier and has managed to actually build a new life for himself beyond that. The question that comes from that comparison is, do we think that Frank and Annie can do the same. This is where, obviously, you are going to need to find your own time and space in order to enjoy this particular story. Mm -hmm. But the discussion of having the freedom to choose your own path, having the freedom to change, is a big component of season one of the new Sandman show. Mm. Therefore, I will be intrigued to talk some more about this as soon as you are done watching it uh, Mm. either in just private conversation or potentially in something that we can externalize together honestly if you find that there is enough room to talk about it i'd be very happy to do a beyond the wind door episode discussing this tv dramatization of the sandman story I mean, that's the biggest vote of confidence you that you could provide for a show, because, like, I've really enjoyed the first episode, but hearing that about the rest of it does make me think it's got the emotional, internal reflection and just rich spread of stuff to warrant that, so I'm really looking forward to it. We continued discussing The Sandman Show for another eight minutes after this, and while we didn't really get into spoiler territory per se... I'm still excising it to put with outtakes and spoilery discussion on other topics in a separate recording. I can promise that when we are ready, we will once more go outside our comfort zone to unpack the whole season in more detail. In the meantime, we had utterly gotten away from discussing our original topic, and the idea of Miguel as a child soldier being controlled by Francisco was one that I decided needed more discussion. So when next we recorded, I decided to not move on to the next planned topic, and instead remind Toby of this one. I want to go back to 
your commentary on Miguel in regards mm-hmm. to viewing him as being Francisco's soldier. Yes. Because I want I went off on a bit of a tangent with my mm-hmm. own personal thought and we, you you followed that with me down the deep mm-hmm. dark tunnel into discussing something that has nothing to do with new century. So to speak, I mean the Sandman is a discussion of the king of stories, but we're not here to talk about that right now. Mm-hmm. There is an intriguing dynamic here that I wanted to explore with you on microphone in terms of when you're a kid, your parents are your world and they impress upon you the need to do as they say, rightly or wrongly, do as I say, so to speak. You even metaphorically referenced a couple of episodes ago now about the idea that for Annie and Frank, God, quote unquote, is dead. And the concept of parents are gods to their children. Mm. Obviously, we don't actually see Miguel talking to Frank directly about his experience with his own father. But Mm. since we've established that both Frau and Miguel have shared enough details about their previous lives for Jeremy and Raven to quote-unquote make a book about their story. It seems clear that Miguel might have shared some of those past experiences. So Mm. Frank may have some of those ideas percolating in his own head in terms of what Miguel went through when they're having that conversation in the woods. I think so, because he... Frank is talking about how, in his head, he was far too young to have enlisted at the point at which he was under the duress of his father. Like, when he's trying to reassure Miguel that he is not going to send him off to rejoin the military as, like, all the paperwork says he should, because he's saying, like, you're too young now and you were certainly too young then. I think he's saying so with the awareness that, like, the main factor in that was his father saying, enlist with me so that we can have this extra opportunity mm-hmm. and Miguel lying because his father told him to. Yeah. So I think he is essentially saying that like you were too young to be a soldier and that was something that your father should never have asked of you. And in this scenario that I'm describing that we are comparing Miguel to essentially being treated as Francisco's soldier. It's sort of like everything that Francisco asked of Miguel was too much for a child his age. It would be too much for any son or child. This unfortunately just sort of sets me down a little bit of a path of like how that's not uncommon in even modern relationships of Mm. parents asking too much of their children, both in sympathetic and non-sympathetic circumstances. But I'm going to push that to one side so that we can again focus on the story at hand. Of course. Originally, there was a long pause after Toby's assertion about Francisco asking too much of Miguel. In case it isn't obvious, I know someone who knows something about being asked too much of as a child. The someone is me. But I don't feel comfortable getting into it 
because it's not entirely my story. Though I have shared a lot about myself here, just like Alex has done over the course of School of Movies, this story is not something that I'm ready to share. I am, in some ways, still right in the middle of that story. It doesn't just ripple forwards into today. It's like the understanding of Rama, where yesterday and today live in concert, and linear time is just an illusion. Best, I think, to keep talking about this story. I don't want to go too far down this road, because obviously it involves a character arc that is not going to be resolved until later in this story. Mm-hmm. But something that came to mind as I was thinking about all of this, prepping for today's recording, is that Francisco is an example of what one could argue is a bad commander, a bad general, not just a bad father, by not taking care of his charge properly, mm. using Miguel as a disposable resource. If he can salvage that resource, then he will. But if he has to discard it in order to survive, then he would do so as easily as he discarded his own wife. He treats the various connections of his life as pieces on a board and usually will not treat any of them with more sense of preservation above the level of a pawn. If it is a way to preserve the king in the back, he will just discard a resource when it is the most fitting time. See, it's intriguing you use the concept pieces on a chessboard, because now I'm going to compare this to Thomas's relationship to Annie and Frank. Before you do, I specifically remember that Miguel wanted to play chess with his father. Wow, okay, mm -hmm. you're right. That That was, in fact, something we even discussed at the time. At the time. And, oh my God. and the potential reason why. Yeah, okay, everything's looping back in on itself. <laughs> we, we actually had a discussion on the reasons why Francisco might not have wanted to do that with yes. Miguel. And I think some of these, you know, king pawn metaphors might have come into play. Yeah, we mentioned it at the time, so I won't spend too much time talking about it. But it all comes down to, like, the way that men and fathers like Francisco and... James's father, the sort of senior Penrose, view the world and other people and how regressive and prone to insular degradation it is. You must be better than other men or be no man at all. The idea that you can never put yourself on the same level as others because either through just selfish preservation that you simply just don't see any resources more valuable than your own, or the idea that in order to be of any value at all, you must be a step above people. Mm. It's all this idea that is antithetical to what we are seeing in Steamheart, where relevant here, again, with the handshake between Frau and the rest of Team Steam. Oh, God. Holy shit. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. We're just mining everything for everything that's connected to everything else. Here I was trying to find a clip from the Dirk Gently show about how everything is connected, but Dirk Gently clips are a bit thin on YouTube. Nevertheless, it's a good thing to point out again how the emotional moments of past stories are reflected forward 
into present stories, yesterday and today all blurring together. In fact, on some level this isn't even a past story. The chapter where James learns about the handshake, after all, was supposed to be a chapter in this very book. And even though James's story is unconnected to Harau and Miguel, it's hard not to look at that moment where she shakes everybody's hand and not think about what that means in the context of the Lonely Boy chapter. None of Team Steam is above anyone else, and the handshake shows that. They are literally a team working in concert. And this, of course, makes me think of the final moments with Thomas and Frank, the leader, and the one who, for a time, was his right-hand man, the one that Thomas trusted above everyone else, save his own wife. When they parted for the final time, they shook hands, Thomas showing that even though he remained the man in charge, they parted with a measure of trust. He even says that explicitly, that he trusts Frank to do the right thing. And this leads directly into the thoughts that I had at time of recording. Thomas Arlington is shown to us as being closer to the epitome of what a good commander should be. And in addition to that, he has developed a personal relationship with our heroes. Maybe less Annie. He more trusts Annie through Frank's vouching for her. He hasn't necessarily had as much personal experience with Annie himself, but he has had you know, this place where he's had to trust his life to Frank. And we talked about that final moment between the two of them where they parted as friends. Mm. And so therefore, as opposed to the general frustration that an enlisted soldier or even an officer has to deal with when they're given orders by their commander that they don't necessarily agree with. Here, Frank and Annie have been given an order by a man that they implicitly trust and who seems to have logical reasons for giving the order that he did. And yet it sits ill with them. And now there's no way for them to reconcile that with the person that gave them the order. They have to figure out how to deal with that. And they have to figure out how to deal with their roles in this support structure. Now that the person that they have trusted the most is gone. Like, in theory, they would be reporting to other people now, which could be someone that they trust or might end up not being someone that they trust. Mm. And it's all the more complicated by, as you'll recall, that one moment in Arlington where a major military figure goes rogue and Frank specifically has to shoot them down or prevent more of the army from defecting. Something I also didn't consider at the time ties into me referring to Butler as the right-hand man for Thomas, and considering it for the Arlingtons as a unit. If you'll remember back in our discussion on the chapter titled Devastation, we discussed a great deal on how the deaths of Thomas and Sarah affected Harry and Annie, because they were the ones most shown to be affected by what happened. We get to see the chaotic internal thoughts on Annie, because she is the leader, and therefore talks about how she has to be the dependable keystone for the group. In comparison, 
Frank talks very little about how he feels, except in the broadest of ways, tying his emotions to everyone else's. I'd lost two people I'd consider great friends. The best bosses I'd ever had. And worse, I could feel the loss in everyone around me. All of us could. In a way, that made things both better and worse. We shared the grief, but giving comfort to one another was harder because it was hurting us as individuals, too. The thing is, Frank knew Thomas and Sarah better. Therefore, the fact that he says as little about it as he does is curious. Under the right-hand man trope, one might expect their loss to be more devastating. And yes, in fact, all of you can see what I did there. He was sent away to protect Team Steam, and therefore not around to prevent the assassination of the Arlingtons. One wonders if he's just able to deal with it better, or if there is an unsaid grief that he does not get into. Because while Annie is trying to be a rock for everyone else, he is trying to be a rock for Annie. It's food for thought, at least. And maybe a conversation we get deeper into at the end of our story, when we cover the final fate of all the members of our team. This all makes for an intriguing cocktail, and it means that Miguel's experience is now more stock for the soup, one could say, that is brewing inside Frank's own head. Conversations with others can often be a means of reflection of the self by just sort of seeing in others comparisons to your own circumstances. And I think that that's what Miguel's conversation here brings out. You know, he mused, you and I are quite the same. He stalked off to claim the deer, calling over his shoulder as he went. And we're both immigrants. That's not necessarily relevant to the discussion of their status as soldiers, but with Frank, a lot of Steamheart is very much this Heart of Darkness style descent into no man's land. The idea that you are getting further and further from your point of reference of what your mission was. And, you know, also Spec Ops is like usually <laughs> my go-to example of that. Mm -hmm. Whatever your preferred uh, take or version of that story is between that and Apocalypse Now and all of that. I have played Spec Ops The Line, but I never read Heart of Darkness or watched Apocalypse Now. Honestly, thinking about what Toby is discussing makes me think about Lord of the Rings more than anything. From the original Fellowship to the deep descent that Sam and Frodo take into the no-man's land of Mordor. Something-something, simply walk, something-something, poisonous fume. When you are so far away from the structures that gave you your role and your designated goals and identity as this soldier in a broader system, you have to ask yourself just how long you hold to those pre-established structures when you're so far away from them. And at what point do you feel like you've lost sight of that? Or if it's something that should have been thrown aside long ago... It's made more complex, as I alluded to, not simply by existing structures and whether they serve or not anymore. There's also the complex relationship of trust and friendship that mm. makes everything more muddled. 
it's no longer a case of do I do as my commanding officer ordered or do I trust my friend even beyond his death? The reason I was triggered by the mention of the chessboard is that even Thomas, as good a man as he was, was still a general looking at all of those pieces on the map of the restored states with all of those little figurines that represented opposing ideologies, opposing groups and everything like that. He still had to reduce this complex idea to pieces on a board, so to speak. And we overall trust that what he was trying to do was good. But this is kind of the insidiousness of paradigms that when you start comparing one thing to another, one can see how the rigidity of thought can make you lose sight of the important nuances and everything like that to maintain empathy and to not reduce everything to matters of practicality. On a chessboard, the conflict is framed not just through strategy, but also what you sacrifice in order to win. That's fine when it's just a game, but it's very bad when you're the piece that is potentially being sacrificed. To paraphrase a key quote in Cartographer's Handbook, I do not believe in a paradigm. <laughs> and that's another episode in the can. I would have tried to make it a little longer, but thanks to real life getting in the way, it's taken all of three weeks to get this episode edited. I have at least an hour and a half of conversation left for chapters 27 through 29, and we already have most of our discussion on chapters 30 through 32 recorded. So I will try to get these out faster, sometime soon. To close us out, I bring forth one of my favorite 90s songs. It could apply on some level to the physical journey that our heroes of New Century are traveling, or to the metaphorical journey, but I also bring it up because it's relevant to the journey Maureen and I are on, trying to find a new normal to build a life around. Until next time, this is Elton John with Simple Life.